Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food, from politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Hello and welcome to this edition of Bread and Butter with me, Caroline Kenyon, co-founder of Food FM. And I am absolutely delighted to welcome the most stellar panel of experts who are going to be talking to us today about the very personal, I think, underrated issue of taste. And the reason why I wanted to bring these wonderful people together to talk about taste and what it means to us, um, both practically, emotionally, and in a much wider sort of cultural sense, is because of the dreaded COVID. And one of the things that I will say myself that has terrified me almost beyond anything about COVID, I mean, obviously, the thought of it being fatal is pretty terrifying, but it's the thought of losing my sense of taste. I absolutely love to eat. I hope I'm not greedy, but eating is an enormous pleasure to me and to my family. And it just made me think about how very underrated the sense of taste is. And I wanted to bring together these extraordinary people with so much knowledge about taste in different ways and just see if we can explore what taste means to us in all these different settings. So today, absolutely thrilled to welcome Tim Doffe, founder of Postcard Teas, a wonderful tea emporium just off Bond Street, Sarah Knowles, master of wine at the Wine Society, Charles Spence, experimental psychologist at the University of Oxford with a particular interest in how the senses connect with each other, and Ed Templeton, founder of Carousel, wonderful restaurant in Maribyrn, renowned for its delicious tasting menu. So welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank so you. it would be wonderful, maybe if we could go round in alphabetical order and you could just tell me about yourself, um, how taste plays out in your professional role, but also what it means to you personally. So Tim, perhaps you'd like to go first. Thank you very much, Caroline. Um, I'm a tea importer, um, a tea retailer and wholesaler. We supply some of the UK's best restaurants and coffee shops. I've been involved with tea for about 30 years, importing for over 20 years. So professionally, I rely on my taste uh, because we're constantly uh, choosing different teas from the tea makers we work with. Often, I don't necessarily select lots because I've taken a long time with my colleagues to find the right tea makers. So they always make good tea, even in a bad year or better tea than other tea makers would. Uh, but that said, we sometimes do select lots. So professionally, I'm, I'm very uh, aware of my taste um, and, and trying to uh, make sure we, we get the best teas. One time I had uh, what I believe is called pine mouth, which comes from eating pine nuts. And I had uh, metallic bitterness for about a month, which was very disconcerting because all the teas I was tasting 
tasted completely wrong. And it was very disconcerting mentally because things which you were familiar with uh, just became completely unusual and strange. So um, I think professionally as well as personally, taste is uh, extremely important to me. But um, uh, having lost an ear uh, and lost the balance when that happened, um, all the senses are are super important so I can relate to that. Thank you Tim. Goodness that's a sort of humbling point on which to end that 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 introduction. Sarah tell us about how taste plays out for you. Hi so yes so I'm a buyer at the Wine Society and so as part of my role I'm tasting um, hundreds of wines a week and we um, I also get involved in many blends working with winemakers to select certain tanks or cuvées of different wines to to import um, what we believe will be the best wine. Taste is also how I got into this industry so in my uh, last year at university I um, got involved in a wine club where I was playing blind tasting games against another university and the blind tasting was how I discovered a love for wine and how I discovered that perhaps I had always had good taste and that I'd always enjoyed food and other taste experiences more than perhaps some of my friends. And wine was suddenly an open door for that. Um, within the Master of Wine study as well, of course, it was a, a large part of the, the experience. There's a very rigorous blind tasting exam uh, that we have to do. And that um, proportion um, relies on good taste and accurate taste, perhaps more, more specifically. Fascinating. Thank you. Charles, I would say that you probably have the most unusual role of, uh, of our panel. And I'm just wondering, uh, uh, tell us a little about how taste plays out in your work, but also how it came to happen. What was your journey to that point? So I'm a uh, psychologist by training, um, working in Oxford, and uh, I've always been interested in the senses, how we perceive the world around us. But it took a few years before I actually got into the world of taste and flavour, even though they are perhaps the most multi-sensory of our experiences, involving not just, of course, what goes on on the tongue, but also very importantly, smell, texture, sight and colour, and even sound too. And it's really the, the, sound, the sound of taste, if you will, where I started out having a lot of hungry undergraduates munching and crunching on uh, tubes of uh, potato chips uh, while I changed the sound of the crunch. Um, and for this uh, groundbreaking taste research, I was awarded the Ig Nobel Prize for Nutrition in 2008. And I've never looked back since really uh, thinking about how, how everything but the taste buds uh, influence our taste and flavour experience. And for me, actually what goes on on the tongue is probably the least interesting aspect of taste. Uh, but then working with chefs and mixologists, baristas, um, roasters, wine experts, uh, tea and coffee uh, professionals uh, to see trends of study how to optimise taste experiences and just to illustrate how important the everything else beyond the, the liquid or the food is, so from cutlery to glassware to colour to background music to the texture or the softness of the chair you're sitting on, I believe all of these factors affect our tasting experience. And it's kind of the role of me as a gastrophysicist these days to try and study those influences and show how they can be used to improve taste for all of us. That is absolutely fascinating. I, and it never, ever occurred to me that the softness of a chair would affect how I tasted something. But I shall reflect on that <laughs> next time I place my my rear end on a restaurant chair. Ed, tell us about you and your, your journey in the world of taste. 
Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, one of the co-founders of a restaurant and events company uh, called Carousel, um, currently based in Marlebone, where we've been for the last seven years, but we're just about to move to Charlotte Street, actually. So uh, yeah, apologies if you can hear background drilling at any point. But um, yeah, basically, I think we're best known for our program of guest chef residencies. Um, so since day one, we've invited chefs from all over the world to come and um, cook with our team for sort of a week or two at a time. Essentially, <laughs> seven years in, um, we've sort of hosted 200 plus chefs from um, yeah from every continent really. Each of whom have come for that week and um, prepare a tasting menu that you know that people can enjoy. It's it's a shared experience, so everyone comes and eats at the same time. And chef comes out of the kitchen and talks a little bit about themselves and the inspiration for, for for what they're cooking. And I guess over the years, it's been fascinating to sort of see, obviously working with chefs from you know Japan or. South America or you know um, all over the place just you know how they how they use flavors and and, um, and how they interpret different ingredients and, and how that you know taste is so kind of embedded in in their sort of cultural lens I guess and I think for, for diners you know for people who come to carousel obviously you know they're coming regulars who come very often and each time they find a new experience taste wise um, but yeah so much of Often, what the chefs are cooking um, is sort of bound up in in their own sort of their childhoods. Uh, I think sort of nine, nine times out of ten, um, we'll talk to a chef and they'll say, "Well, you know, I was influenced by my grandmother cooking this or the smells of this sort of roasting in a pan." And it's just, yeah, it's amazing how kind of you know, as 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 chefs, those influences kind of come out on the plate. But yeah, we've sort of seen over the years just uh, all sorts, really. Um, I mean, probably not to the level that obviously Charles is talking about, but just you know how how kind of chefs can sort of play with expectations of taste as well and sort of hot and cold and texture and sort of you know you can sort of play around and sort of have a bit of a game with with the diners as well who are kind of expecting one thing and then and then trying something else but I mean the kind of you know the possibilities are obviously kind of endless but it's it's yeah it's amazing to see what someone who I don't know we we had a chef uh, came over from La Paz in Bolivia where uh Klaus Meyer, who was one of the people behind Noma, had founded a restaurant there because he was so fascinated by the Amazon and the kind of indigenous ingredients there and wanted to kind of do the whole kind of look of all new Nordic thing, but in the Amazon and, and, and this, uh, this amazing restaurant sort of came out of that. But yeah, the variety is just incredible. And um, yeah, we're sort of obviously going to continue with that in the, in the new location sort of what we do and keeps things interesting for us, obviously working with so many different people with such regularity. Thank you, Ed. So interesting. That prompts so many thoughts in my mind, and I'm sure I'm sure with with everybody. So it, what it made me think is, you know, as it happens today, our panel we're we're all British, and I just wondered, is there a British sensibility in terms of taste? Is that something that uh, you could comment on, Sarah? Perhaps you'd like to go with that one because you're tasting wines for the British market, aren't you? Yeah, we absolutely think that there is that we understand our members' taste. So the wine society is a cooperative, so I may talk about customers as members, um, but we we as buyers feel that we've got a sense of their taste in a particular way and so we we will try and buy best for that that membership base i think there there are of course many wines made around the world that are made in larger volumes and made um, specifically for certain markets and so there is an idea that there are global tastes perhaps the most simple would be that a higher residual sugar level within a red wine might be more popular in the far east or within america a lower residual sugar level might be more popular in europe but there are other nuances within that um, i think 
it's um it's also quite easy though when working with smaller producers to to actually focus on the product itself rather than the the consumer and to say um are you making in our instance, wines that really reflect the terroir and really show the the best of the product and the grape using the best possible technologies or the least interventive, you know, interventionist technologies, um, to really make sure that the the product gets the the full focus. You're making that in into its absolute um, sort of zenith, and if you can achieve that, and then um, find the market that suits it, that's probably the the right approach for us with with wine, just because of the the sort of myriad of styles that are available. So there will always be a style that I believe can suit uh, a huge range of tastes. And so really we want to find producers making um, exceptional wines um, of their type and trying to get that typicity is something that I'm really interested in um, rather than perhaps trying to manufacture wines um, for a perceived market taste. That's fascinating. Very interesting. And and Tim, can you relate to that? Yes, I think I can. Um, The English have a particular taste in in black tea and they kind of have played a big part in evolving the taste for blended black tea around the world. But the wonderful thing about tea is that it's uh, both grown and then completely produced in the same place, uh, a bit like wine or like cheese. And therefore it reflects uh, very different tastes around the world. And one of the great joys of working in this world is discovering and pushing your own boundaries of taste. For example, being my, my, my favorite Chinese tea city is a tea city called Chaozhou. And I tried teas from Chaozhou that are often called Dansong, which means like single bush or single tree tea in the purest form. It is often from a single tree. And these teas, uh, when I brewed them uh, in England or even in Japan, when I'd first experienced them, I underbrewed them uh, and I brewed them at the wrong temperature. Then when I went to Chaozhou, I was kind of blown away by the astringency um, that they were brewed uh, there. And so for the first day, I walked around kind of in shock um, and, and thinking everybody didn't know what they were doing. But of course, it was it was me. Um, it was my lack of understanding, my lack of kind of opening up this uh taste doors to a new experience and and so after a while that astringency became less important but the the longer brewing and the uh, hotter water uh, brought out aromas and uh, taste and textures that you wouldn't have had at the lower temperature I'd previously been brewing these teas so I think that's one of the wonderful things is that when you discover another culture, uh, another tea, um, another taste experience, you can broaden your own palate. Very interesting. Thank you, Tim. Charles, I just wanted to ask you, and maybe this is just too simplistic a question with a, with a very complex uh, answer, but would you be able to characterise what, the let's say, the, kind of the handful of key influences are on shaping an individual's sense of taste? Uh, I think I can. I'll give it a go, at least. So I guess as first thing to note is kind of the confusion we have when most of us talk in sort of everyday language. I like the taste of this. I have good taste. And what we're really probably referring to is the flavour. And as a sort of scientist, um, thinking about food and flavour, we'd restrict the use of the word taste just to what you get from the tongue, uh, to the basic tastes, which is just sweet, sour, bitter, salty, 
umami, perhaps metallic, perhaps fatty acids as well, but sort of five key basic tastes. But everything else that we enjoy when we describe the taste or rather flavour of food and drink, you know, the fruity, the herbal, the, the meaty, the burnt, the creamy, all of those more interesting uh, notes in the tasting experience are all really derived from the nose, both probably from when we sniff a food, uh, the tea in the glass before we've tasted, but also when we swallow, we get pulses of this volatile, rich air coming out of the back of our mouth through our nose. And it's that what we call retronasal smell that may actually, if you want a number, something like 75 to 95% of what we think we're tasting, we're actually smelling. And what's amazing to me is how, what a great job our brain does in kind of convincing all of us that we can really taste the liquid in our mouth. It, our, sort of, our brain combines the senses, both the smells and the tastes, but also the texture, the mouthfeel, the astringency that was just mentioned, but also any cues we get before we taste, when we see that glass of red wine, what we think is red wine, but if you came into our lab, it might well be a white wine, artificially coloured red, and those expectations from the eye, and from the sounds we hear, the sounds of opening of a cork, or the ding of a microwave if you're in a fancy restaurant, they can also help set our expectations of flavour. And all of these things come together for the first time in our, in our brains, where they're combined you know, with our mood, uh, with, with, with nostalgia, with so much else. And then we project that experience into whatever's in our mouth and choose the shorthand term of taste. I found that that's also interesting, Charles. I, I, one thing that slightly puzzles me is I, mm -hmm. I think I, that my, my sense of taste is pretty good but I have a poor sense of smell or well, not poor but it's it's not great I compare it with my husband who I, I always say he's a bit like an animal you know he could smell a trail <laughs> and when you say that 95% of taste is governed by your sense of smell I mm -hmm. think I, that confuses me but you're probably familiar with the you know, experience when you have a head cold yes um, then uh, you say the food doesn't taste anymore and in that case, you know, your taste buds are working just perfectly. All that you've lost is kind of the blockage uh, of the volatiles, the aroma through your nose. But then, you know, with, with that head cold, all you can get is, you know, just sweet, salty, bitter, umami, that's it. And so the experience is very, very thin. Same thing in the lab when we give people pure taste solutions with no smell or aroma at all. Then I can sort of discriminate the basic taste, but it's not something that you would enjoy. I think the real pleasure... Uh, pleasures of the table emerge from this integration uh, of the smell and taste uh, for us. Well, maybe but, my yeah. sense of smell is better than I thought. Well, I think I bet it is. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Ed, I think we've caught you at a really perfect time because if you're creating your new environment in Charlotte Street, you must be giving a lot of thought to how you're creating this environment where the food is going to taste even more delicious to your customers. <laughs> well, that's yeah. I mean, that's the idea. I think I think it's the proximity for us of, of of the chef to the diners, and obviously we're not the only restaurant to have an open kitchen by any means. But I think for us, it's um, because we change the chef so often, uh, you know, on purpose, <laughs> quite high high staff turnover. A lot of what we're doing is telling the story before the diners come um, to the point, you know, that that's been made about kind of you know priming your guests beforehand about what the experience is that they're going to have um, and, and why they should be coming to it. And I think in terms of the, the actual environment and the dining room that, that, that we're creating in the new place, um, we've actually kind of breaking down that barrier between sort of kitchen and dining room even further. And it's just going to be a, an island sort of floating in the middle of the space uh, where the chefs will work around. Um, so it's sort of rather than, you know, it'll sort of feel like essentially the, the, the diners are in, are in the kitchen there with the chef. And, and I think, you know, 
we have quite a kind of wide range, yeah, variety of chefs coming in, many of whom are sort of very well known and, you know, sort of garlanded with Michelin stars and things. And then also kind of uh, always kind of on the lookout for, for up and coming talent, sort of the next the next big thing. So but but I think I, in both cases, I think there's an excitement, I think, for, for the guests to be sort of, uh, yeah, in such close close proximity. And I think you know, the, the, the richer the story you can tell beforehand and, and the, the kind of the richer the experience um, that, that they have just just from arriving and, and being there and sort of seeing the chef's work, I think I think that really does affect their enjoyment of the actual food on the plate. Yeah, I think I think absolutely the, the kind of psychological factor in that is is is, is massive. Um, but yeah, with with the with the new space we're really sort of trying to sort of break down those barriers even further. No, well I, I completely identify when you say that anticipation is a you know it's a great seasoning, isn't it, for food? Because uh, uh, my husband, he is an amazing cook and uh, we take it in turns to cook for each other at the weekend and I always look forward to his cooking so much that I I eat very sparingly during the day and I'm you know sitting at the kitchen table it's almost on my starters blocks and I can't wait for whatever it is to be put in front of me and and it does always taste delicious and I think part of that is the sort of the emotional build-up and so I, I can completely understand that if you're you're sitting in a restaurant and you know that some really notable chef is cooking for you or or you know some exciting new talent so it's going to you know it's like a, a, an extra spritz on the dish isn't it absolutely i think you know there's it's it's quite deliberate you know people book for that specific chef i mean people know us and say okay like carousel we'll see who's who's in this week but you know that they're, they're there for because that chef is only in london for five days um so it's sort of, you know, it's a bit more of a kind of, I suppose, theatrical experience um, than just, you know, a regular meal out at a restaurant that, you know, you know and like um, because of that connection. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Anticipation is, is you know, half of it at least. Do you think that taste can be taught? Sarah, do you want to have a, a, a go at that one? Because is it something that's innate? Are you blessed with it from birth or do you think you can really train up your taste? So I have to... I have to admit that um, although I think I I have always enjoyed um, food and and taste experiences and smells, um, and I would agree actually with Charles that smell is is so critical to to taste from from at least my perspective. I would argue that you can train you can you you really can start from a, a position of um, perhaps just not even realizing what you're smelling and sensing and tasting, and you can build that up with training. So the approach I had an entry into wine was was very much that. So I joined a blind tasting team, as I said that. I had no idea of different wines. I didn't really know um, that there were multiple grape varieties. Um, red and white were um, a sort of mystery to me. And through the process of tasting 12 wines um, twice a week with a coach who would tell us about the wines and tell us what we should be tasting, and we would taste them entirely blind and talk about them and discuss them and try and make, um, you know, we'd make revision notes. We took it quite seriously. Um, I would go away and study that if I smelt gooseberry, that could be an indicator for Sauvignon Blanc. And if I smelt strawberries and cream, that might be an indicator of Rioja. And I would learn these things off by heart um, until it became um, something that was much more intuitive. And so you can you can train yourself to be a correct identifier of tastes, at least within the wine sphere, um, because that is something that I, I have done and, and really believe anyone can do if they put their mind to it in a very um, systematic way. We also encourage 
our members to, to take a little bit of a systematic approach to some of the wines if they're looking to, to learn what their particular favourite tastes might be. And so we, we offer wines that compare and contrast styles or contra- compare and contrast um, winemaking techniques that may impact the taste and smell of a wine. So we, we really think that you can get there within the Master of Wine as well and, and within the um, there's a set of exams in the wine trade called the Wine and Spirits um, Education Trust. And through that, um, or through those exams and through the Master of Wine exams, it was also very clear that at that point in my life, I was probably the best taster I've ever been. So in the preparation for it, I was um, extremely accurate and able to identify wines um, from uh, very quickly and identify their quality as well as perhaps where they're where they're from and what they're made from and that was important for the exam and necessary to pass but I think finishing the exam and finishing that very formatted educational kind of revision of it um, I felt like I, I perhaps lost some of my taste and so you can also fall out of practice and I think when you've you know in my current role I may be tasting a few hundred wines a week um, but there are some weeks where I taste many more than that and some weeks where I taste less and you you can see your ability to make quick decisions and and identify things very quickly um, improve in the busier weeks or in the run-up to an exam like that. And so I'm sure that it's something that can be honed um, and and learnt. I guess what you're you're learning from the um from all the psychologists who've studied the um the kind of the wine training and tea and beer training as well, uh, is that what you kind of learn seems to be, as you mentioned, kind of the ability to identify what you are smelling. Or tasting, yes. but you don't. With practice, you don't really become better able to detect things. Full stop. It's just you can still detect what you could always detect, but now you can put a name on it, and it's that putting a name on things that helps you to sort of lock it in memory. And then, as you were just describing, associate it with where you tasted it before, where it came from, and what else it might be related to. Absolutely, and of course, to your point, other factors make a difference. So we, I rigorously trained with a specific set of glasses. Uh, not just because I thought that they were good glasses for tasting, but because I wanted them to be replicate, replicable. Uh-huh. So very I good, wanted the, the same glasses <laughs> to be to be in my exam. So I would carry around a, uh-huh. a, a handbag that could fit 12 tasting glasses in it so that I could consistently <laughs> use the same glasses at every opportunity when tasting for a very particular exam. Within my profession, we, there are standard tasting glasses that we will uh-huh. we will use consistently to, to try and replicate um, what we're what we're seeing, and of course, Charles, I think you mentioned it earlier. The the sort of environment around you makes such a huge difference. So as a buyer, I'm frequently um, very lucky to be tasting wines um, in beautiful environments, um, out in the vineyards with winemakers, mm-hmm. uh, in exceptional places with often um, delicious complimentary food. Uh, it's a job that I, I don't take for granted, <laughs> but I um, I also recognise that within that um, environment, the wines can taste um, to a degree a little better. And so uh-huh. it's actually very important to taste them back in the UK in a tasting room that we have designed at the Wine Society to be um, quite clinical. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's entirely white so that we can see colour and all of those sorts of things. It's got um, good air conditioning and air circulation so that we don't you know mitigate outdoor smells and it's important that a wine tastes good there um, to then also not be carried away by um, by the sort of mm-hmm. other factors around around tasting. I can imagine that the setting can be very seductive. I think uh, those of us absolutely trippers to a vineyard in France or Italy, you know, you're so carried away by the whole setting and ambiance that you know suddenly you find that your car boot is full of bottles. 
and it's not quite the same when you get it home. But um, Tim, how do you find it with tea? Because my father always used to say that he couldn't drink tea out of a mug. It had to be from a bone china cup. And I thought he was being snobbish. But actually, now I've grown up and become a tea drinker, I, I do think I understand what he means. I, I would broadly agree too. Uh, I personally don't like mugs. There's one potter in the UK that makes mugs so beautifully, beautifully that, that I, I enjoy drinking from his mug, but rarely from other people's. Um, I designed with a, a great ceramic designer called Peter Ting, a range called 1660, which went to Twinings, ourselves, Faulkner Mason and other companies, which highlighted different aspects of tea, one the fragrance, the other the texture and then a kind of balance of the two. So uh, I'm very familiar uh, with what Sarah is talking about, with the familiarity of a particular drinking vessel. I would say, though, that tea is pretty distinct because it doesn't have like a world standard, um, and you brew tea so differently in different locations that we don't have the kind of uniformity that coffee and to a degree wine has, uh, and a, a global market too. Predominantly, the best Chinese teas will never leave China uh, in the future just because of the economic power, but more for the, the cultural uh, and historical connections that they have to the culture. So to ask people to pay the kind of prices that have been paid for tea, which I believe exceed even the highest wine prices, is never going to be really a factor for people in the West that don't have that connection with the, the culture that produced it. That's, yeah, so, yeah. Well, so much to think about in all of this. It's prompting so many questions in my mind. Ed, I'm just wondering about um, things like um, knives and forks. Do you think about the the material that it's made? They're made from. Does that make a difference to how the food tastes in your mouth? Um, I'm sure it absolutely does. Uh, I have to admit that I think one of the uh, one of the reasons we're able to do uh, what we do and kind of rotate the chef with such regularity is we're kind of limiting the variables um uh, so so the the chefs coming in will sort of plug into, into into sort of operational processes that we've developed over time to make it you know as easy as possible for for our team to kind of execute you know an amazing dinner the day after the chef arrives so things like cutlery glassware crockery those are things that we sort of that, that stay the same um as do our kind of team front of house and, and, and the supporting team in the kitchen. Um, I think, you know, I've often sort of wistfully looked at beautiful sort of Japanese knives and um, you know, French steak knives and, and thought, God, it'd be amazing if we could <laughs> if we could switch things up in their entirety, but also uh, obviously, you know, from week one week to the next. But um, sadly, our, um, our kind of basic setup uh, remains, remains the same from one week to the next. We've done a couple of studies in restaurants in um, Scotland, uh, serving people the same uh, meal. About half the tables had heavy curry, the other half of the tables had light canteen cutlery. Uh, and the difference in how much people were willing to pay for exactly the same food in the same day in the same place, quite dramatic, simply as a function of the weight in the hand. So that's one of the first things I always do when I go to a restaurant is pick up the cutlery and feel the weight. But therein, for me, like on Eliza, a, a, a sort of curiosity that... Weight seems to make many things better. There's a correlation between uh, the, the, the uh, price of a bottle of a wine in the UK stores and the amount of glass you get. About seven grams a pound sterling is the correlation we found here in Oxford. But when it comes to tea, you know, this seems to be one case, um, and maybe wine to a certain extent too, where I bet you know tea would not taste better out of a heavier cup or mug if we were to go for that. Whereas coffee, wood, and many other drinks, perfume smell better, food tastes better with something heavier in the hand. What is it about tea? 
uh, and to a certain extent wine that that kind of inverts that relationship between uh, weight and quality. Um, That's a very interesting one. I I think possibly because the hand-blown or the handmade, hand-turned cup uh, was always the pinnacle, certainly in Asia, in Japan and China. So uh, the finesse that it's made, which often relates to its weight and the lightness of it, uh, would indicate quality and therefore an enhanced experience, I guess. Well, and what do you make of the, um, I'm very interested in sort of the chai in India, uh, and I guess uh, the sort of te- tradition there of having is it sort of very rough uh, pot cups that you just sort of drink from and then smash on the ground once you've finished. Magical, both environmentally and several <laughs> states. Bihar has banned plastic, thank goodness. Uh, but I much prefer the the terracotta, which you taste because the, the chai is so hot. Um, I, I used to keep them and of course people would look at me as though I was absolutely mad that I wasn't throwing it on the ground. Um, I would take it back to the hotel and wash it out and reuse it. Listening to you talk about the, you know, the weight of things, you just reminded me of a chef friend of mine cooked a private dinner for Prince Charles and apparently she had a lot of messages from beforehand from his uh, entourage about the weight of the whiskey glass. He's very specific about how heavy it is. But maybe there is, there's a, you know, there's a, the underlying reason is it affects the taste of the whiskey. Charles, I just wanted to ask you, have you done any work with people who've lost their sense of taste due to COVID? Uh, yes, we have a, a study ongoing uh, with colleagues over in uh, Spain looking at um, nasal mucus and uh, its relationship to you know, severity of COVID symptoms. And uh, yeah, my, a lot of my colleagues certainly have been doing a lot of work here in the UK and across the world, really, from, here, from the early days when, I think, it was, if you remember back to the very uh, beginning, it's got a surprise. With these reports coming in the press, you know, people losing their sense of smell or taste as a result of COVID, and no one quite believed it. It took months and months before that became kind of one of the signature symptoms uh, of, of COVID. And you think, you know, how would we have reacted if it had been any one of our other senses that had been lost, even temporarily? Imagine people going blind because of COVID, uh, and sort of fear it would put in people's minds. So I'm interested in sort of the taste and the smell. It turns out, you know, given that I said earlier, how just how important. Uh, the smell element is to what we think we taste, then those researchers who have looked to see which specifically of our chemical senses are affected by COVID have been able to show, yes, um, there is a uh, dramatic effect on uh, smell, not only loss of sensation, but also sometimes these parosmias, when you sort of smell one thing as something else, but also there is a decline in the taste buds' efficacy themselves, and also in the sort of the more trigeminal the kind of the pungency of, of ginger or the spice of chili, uh, that all three senses do, can show uh, a decrement in many of those who have had COVID, which, as we know, I guess, can for some extend over a period of several months. And I am contacted uh, uh, more than occasionally by individuals who have long COVID and have a long-term loss of smell and taste, uh, often several months after uh, the onset. Uh, I think for men, for most, it will eventually come back but it is a, a very sort of discombobulating experience when you know the the, the tastes and the flavors you know and love suddenly disappear and or start to taste or smell very different to know what you know they should i can uh, i can sympathize with that i uh, i i sort of lost my lost my sense of smell temporarily but um but yeah there are certain flavors that since since having covid um just haven't been the same uh, and i'm sort of desperately trying to work out how to how to get them back and coriander is one of them which um it tastes 
so people say but yeah for me um you know i never had an issue with it and um and since having covid it, it tastes exactly like a uh, fairy liquid and i don't know what to do because it's in some of my favorite food <laughs> so um yeah no i could definitely uh yeah i can definitely attest to that ed i don't know whether you, you feel like sharing but how does that make you feel emotionally i uh i suppose i, I don't dwell on it a lot but um but there yeah there are others other other things like um sort of car exhaust which i suppose i wasn't sort of fully aware of before but now i have this very strong intense kind of vegetal smell um yeah i cycle to work and that's something that is sort of constantly hitting me and also sort of deep fried food <laughs> which i have to say i absolutely love as well and uh, i just get a scent a taste of burns at the moment so it's a little bit demoralizing at times when you sort of you know the particular restaurants or particular types of food that you know normally i get extremely excited about and I'm a, little bit, a little bit nervous whether i'll uh, be able to sort of enjoy them as I, as I did well i think that's a very a very stoic attitude towards it ed and uh, i mean charles do you deal with the emotional side of taste in your investigations not so much necessarily from uh, the loss uh, of the sense but uh, certainly it plays in in terms of uh yeah, i think it Part of what makes that wine taste so much better in the vineyard or, or in the uh, Mediterranean on our summer holidays than it does on a cold winter's night back in the UK is um, this the phenomenon known as a Provencal rosé paradox. Why does the same wine taste different? Part of the answer to that, I think, is around our emotional state. So it's very clear, I think, that you know the mood we're in affects uh, the taste of the food and of the wine. And you never enjoy even one of the fanciest meals if you're in a bad mood or in a low mood, fighting with your partner, say. Whereas if you are in a good mood, it can help to elevate the food experience. And knowing that, uh, I sort of start my book on the perfect meal and gastrophysics uh, with the example of uh, one uh, Swiss chef, uh, Denis Martin, who, who has seen too many guests coming into his restaurant, all very stiff and formal, buttoned up, on account. And he sort of realised that when they turned up to his restaurant looking like that in the wrong emotional state, they just didn't get his food nor enjoy it as much as he thought they should, given all the effort he puts into preparation and sourcing. And his solution, uh, sort of beautifully simple, is just this sort of cow that he puts on the middle of each uh, white tablecloth of this two Michelin star Swiss restaurant. And that when guests come, they sort of the single sitting, somebody eventually picks that thing up from the table to see whether it's a, a salt or a pepper shaker. They lift it to look on the underside, at which point they're surprised by the sound of a moo. This is no more than a one euro cheap plastic uh, uh, toy, a mooing cow, diners laugh, their mood is elevated. Um, and within a few moments, you know, night after night, every table has their cow in the air. You have a restaurant full of laughing diners. It's kind of a mental palate cleanser. And that's when the first dish comes out. And so I think this is, you know, uh, recognising the importance of emotion to taste and then thinking about how to optimise your guest's emotional state uh, is something that more and more chefs and restaurateurs are, are taking uh, seriously these days. Wonderful. Well, I, what a fantastic conversation. Very, very sadly, we are about to run out of time. But you've just reminded me of something I think is such a great change in the way that dining out has developed. I remember when I was very young, I was taken to a really grand restaurant in Chelsea, and I won't mention where it was, but it was full of people whom I thought at the time were terribly old, probably the age I am now. And everybody was talking in whispers. And I just found the whole atmosphere so oppressive. And the napkin, the starch napkin placed on my lap by the waiter, that actually I didn't enjoy the food very much. And I just love the fact that that eating out is now so much more relaxed. And I'm sure that has definitely 
enhanced my my sense of taste and and enjoyment and flavor thank you all so much what an absolute smorgasbord of collective genius and knowledge and insight and i hope you all have a wonderful day and may we all protect our sense of taste and please stay safe and healthy thank you thank you very much you're listening to bread and butter with caroline kenyon to find out more about food fm and our content go to foodfmradio.com